It's the poets, the hymn writers, the carol writers that help to inform what we see in their own artistic way, the nativity, the scene that's before us of the birth of Christ with all of the different characters. And through the season of Advent, we've been looking at the carol angels from the realms of glory and in some way placing each of the familiar characters next to the manger. The hymn writer, carol writer, says, Angels from the realms of glory wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Shepherds in your field abiding, watching o'er your flocks at night. God with us is now residing. Yonder shines the infant light. Today we're going to look at sages. Leave your contemplations. Brighter visions beam afar. Seek the great desire of nations. Ye hath seen his natal star. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Let us pray. We've come, Lord, to worship, to bow down and to present our very gifts, what we have in worship to you, even a king born in a manger. Would you remind us of who you are and who we are in your mercy? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In this week's edition of My Wife is a Weirdo, she's the kind of person that when she gets a book, will start to read the book, and about a chapter or two in, jumps to the very end to see how it ends. I know, weird, right? Any other weirdos that do that? Wow. Oh, yeah, there you go. Come on. We got yeah, to make a connection with the weirdos, Yeah. Have a little support group to encourage each other. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so come on. You just, you don't want to raise your hand in public is why, because you've just been found out. But uh, I wonder, what if we took Aubrey's method and applied it to the story of Jesus found in the, math, in the Gospel of Matthew, right? So what if we started to read the first couple chapters and then jump to the end to see how it ends? Spoiler alert, Jesus dies and is resurrected. Kind of a big deal. Just didn't, not sure if you knew that. So big deal. So, but at the very end of Matthew's gospel is what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus is with his disciples and he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you even to the end of the age. That's the end of the story. So sometimes we might view this great commission to go and make disciples of all nations as just kind of a nice little, hey, guys, if you're not busy and you want to like go do something now that I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to return to heaven, do my thing, I want you, right? I want you to do this. Could you do this for me? Do me a little favor. But the truth is, as you see in Matthew's story, this desire of nations, as the carol writer calls Jesus, is not just an afterthought but there from the very beginning. Matthew wrote his story to a primarily Jewish audience. He wanted to talk about Jesus as being the fulfilled Messiah, the the promised one. So this audience that would understand what we would call the Old Testament, Matthew's going to include a lot of things in his story that's going to look back but also point to see how Jesus is not only the fulfillment of all that they had hoped for, but even some of the ways that he is the true king. 
So Matthew begins his story by dropping some names. Jesus is the son of Abraham and David. I mean, that's like the Babe Ruth and the Hank Aaron of Judaism. Anybody know those people? Right? This, I mean, these are big time people in the Jewish faith. Just read the Old Testament and these names stand out. And Matthew begins a genealogy, a listing of names to show how Jesus is going to be connected into the, the heavy hitters of their faith the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, we're going to also see, we've talked in the past about the reason they go to Bethlehem is because it's the city of David and he's from the line of David and all that stuff. But they start down with these names and we start to, you know, Abraham. Yeah, 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 okay, I remember him. And Isaac, yeah, I'm with you. And Jacob, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they start to get to the names that you just can't pronounce. So you start to read a little bit faster. Is that just me? Right? But then there's this record scratch moment, this sort of, oh, whoops, oh, wait a second, what is happening here when Matthew includes a woman's name? What? It's a dude fest. Genealogies are all about the bros. But here comes the ladies. Shout out to the ladies, right? So before we talk about the three kings, I want to talk to you about the three queens. You ready? So there's this woman that's listed named Rahab in this genealogy. I really can't tell you much more about Rahab because her story is rated R. I mean, it's, she's, you know, she's got a past. She's got some struggles. But even, you know, one of the things that stands out is Jesus being the great desire of nations, the one who calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, included in his line is a Canaanite woman. You just have to read like two pages of the Old Testament to learn pretty quick that the Israelites and the Canaanites, they didn't get along. You know, they didn't like each other very much. But here comes this woman with a past, with some challenges in her life, and is a Canaanite. And God includes her into the great line, into the story of salvation. And next comes This woman that we talked about last week named Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. Similarly, they didn't get along with the Moabites, but Ruth was so poor. She was so poor that she was literally picking grain kernels off of the ground. And God includes her into the story of redeeming love, includes her into this story and line of Jesus. And then we have a third woman, the third queen. Her name isn't even given, but her name is Bathsheba. Now, if you know anything about King David and some of the pain and the trauma that he caused with that relationship, Bathsheba goes on actually to be the mother of Solomon, who's also another big deal king in the Old Testament. But Matthew doesn't even say her name. He calls her the wife of Uriah. Oh, man, you're going there? I'm going there, he says. I'm going there. We all know who she is because we've remembered the story of David and Bathsheba. We remember that Uriah was a Hittite. He was a Hittite. You got a Canaanite, you got a Moabite, you got a Hittite in the very genealogy, in the line, in the story of Jesus. And before we talk about the three kings, there's three queens that come onto the scene that are part of our Christmas story. Now, we may not have 
remembered them because we want to skip past that part quickly to get to the end of the chapter where it talks about Joseph. And let's get to the Christmas story. That's a little bit easier to read. And then, right, just in the second chapter, in the very first verse, towards the very beginning of the story, comes what we know as the Magi, the three kings. Obviously, we don't necessarily think there were three kings. There were three gifts presented. We're not sure how many kings there were, but we have a nice carol that goes along with it, right? And we sing about the kings, and we sing about the gifts. And so we've always kind of taken them as being kings, or Magi, wise men, or wise guys. So here they're coming from the east, if you remember the carol, if you remember the scripture, they see a star and they begin to make their way. So now here is another people group. Most of the time we think they were Persians. So here are these Persian astrologers that are going to serve as the great contrast of the people who shouldn't get it, wind up getting it, right? And the people who should get it, they swing and miss. It's these, it's these weirdos. I mean, they're weird. Come on. You know, they're weirdos. Persian astrologers. They are following a star. It's like Professor Trelawney showing up on your uh, doorstep and like, I've read the tea leaves and I've come to talk to you. No, get out of here, hippie. You're weird. All right? You remember the psychic hotline network from the 80s? Call this number and we'll tell you, we'll read the stars and we'll tell you all about your future. And I'm just like, God wants to use them? They're the ones that are going to be the ones that stand at the manger, that help to tell the story of Jesus? This is what God specializes in. I feel like I talk about this every week, but this just keeps coming up for me as I read the scriptures. God loves to do these things, the things and the people that we just want to put aside, that we don't think have anything to teach us. God brings right back into the center and to say, oh, there is a Canaanite woman and there's a Moabite woman. Here's a Hittite woman. And now here come Persian astrologers from the East that God is a God of the world. Joy to just Jerusalem, joy to Israel, or joy to the world, the Lord is come. What good news of great joy for all people, for Canaanites and Moabites and Hittites and Persian weirdos that come to a manger to teach us what it's like to worship a king. Now they show up in Jerusalem because that's sort of where we would think the king would be born. And King Herod, again, just think about how many times Matthew calls him king. You know, everyone knew that Herod was the king when they're reading that story. But he calls him King Herod. And then King Herod, right? So they come and they're like, where's the baby? Where's the bassinet? We've come to worship the baby. We've seen the star. Where is he? And I'm not sure why King Herod gave them an audience. But he's like, oh, okay. What are you, what are you talking about? The baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, we saw the star. We figured Jerusalem, you know, pretty important city. We're here to see the king. Where's the baby? And he calls the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Uh, hey, guys, yeah, I'm asking for a friend. Uh, I know, obviously, you know, I know, but he doesn't. So where? And oh, yeah, yeah, king. You remember the prophet Micah and, you know, Bethlehem. Hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, okay. So King Herod goes to the Magi and says, Hey, guys, you know, when you find the baby, will you come back and get me so that I too may go and kill? I mean, worship him. This is what we see. King Herod. He doesn't even know. And when he finds out, 
We go on to see what Herod does. Uh, guys, just before you leave, when did you see the star? Give me a roundabout date. Uh, we saw it in the month of whatever. We saw it in the year of whatever. And they, they, they tell him, he's like, okay. And he does some calculations. He calculates just to be safe. And he's like, okay, they told me this, I saw the star in this month, and let's just do, 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 let's factor in a couple more months beyond that. And let's just, okay, everybody is around a certain age, let's give it a couple years, get rid of them, get rid of them. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. That's why Joseph is warned in a dream, take your child and your wife and get out of here. That's why the Magi are warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod. He's come to harm the boy. And so, what lengths does he go to? I mean, this is what the first century historian Josephus said of King Herod. And I feel like it pretty much sums up the kind of guy we would expect him to be. He said, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of Herod's sons. He didn't think twice about wiping out all the little boys in Bethlehem when he murdered his own family to protect his kingship, his throne, his power, the lengths of which we go as people to protect what is ours. And the Magi, they, they get this. They, they, they are willing to not only learn about the story of where the king is to be born, but to actually make the journey there. I'm fascinated that the teachers, the law, and the scribes, and even the king himself, they didn't go he just sends his army down to take care of it. They don't want to go and see for themselves. That's what these strange wise guys teach us, is that when we receive this message, are you willing to, to follow the star just a little bit further to get to the place where he is? Sometimes we've got to leave our contemplations. We must make a journey, because a brighter vision will beam afar. Who will we seek when we are on the way? The one who is the desire of nations. As we see his star, we see, we gather around the manger to see the one who invites the nations. The Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites, the Persians. To come, to see. And Matthew is also going to include another nation with this. He includes the nation of Egypt. Because where is it that Joseph and Mary flee to find refuge? They find refuge in the place that is historically known to be their greatest oppressor. What is Matthew doing here? You see, he's writing primarily for a Jewish audience. And it's within the first two chapters. He's bringing in all sorts of people. And then where does the true king Right? Not, not in Jerusalem, not with King Herod. Who's the true king in this story? Look at the contrast. Is it King Herod who doesn't even know and doesn't even go? Or is it now this king that is born in the manger where even Persian astrologers come to worship, but he has to flee down to Egypt? Think about the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the book of Exodus, the story that defined who they are as God's people in Egypt is the geographical center of that. And then Matthew says that after Herod dies, God informs Joseph to say, come on back, it's safe to bring. And then Matthew says, that's just like Hosea, the prophet Hosea that said, out of Egypt I've called my son. 
Hosea was talking about the nation. He was talking about the Exodus. Another connecting point that if you know the story of Hosea and what he's trying to do, he's telling the story of the Exodus again, reminding the people, as the prophets often do, about their history, about their story. And Matthew is saying that, you remember that oppressive place? That place that defined us for so long. But God in his mercy, brought us out of captivity, of slavery. Now, this true king, he's coming from that place. He's going to reside there in that place. But the exodus that he brings with him is not a geographical freedom. It's a freedom, not from slavery, but a freedom from slavery to sin and to death. His new exodus is a spiritual exodus of freedom. He's the true king that will lead his people into true freedom. He's got to go down into Egypt. But it's in Egypt that he finds refuge. He's the desire of nations. Go and make disciples of all even Egypt. Well, yeah, why not Egypt? Because sometimes what God wants to teach us is that it doesn't matter if you have a past. It doesn't matter if you've got things that are so rated R in your life that you wouldn't even want to say them out loud in public. If you're from a land that, you know, is just not the land that other people want to get along with. If you're a Canaanite woman, there's a place for you in the story of God's love. If you're so poor that you've got to pick up grain off the ground, listen to what God can do with your story to include you now and to provide for you, not just you know, in the physical, but now to give you a legacy of not just a king like King David, but a true king. And you have some stories that you just wish weren't told. Do you have something that is just a story of shame and pain? Can God take that story as well? Hittite woman and include you into the great story of love? Persian weirdos. All contrasted with the people that we think we should get it, right? You, should, you know where it is. It's in Bethlehem. You know this story. You know all that is supposed to be promised to us. Who gets it? The Canaanite and the Hittite, the Moabite, the Persians, the Egyptians. They're getting it. Seek the great desire of nations. It's not an afterthought, friends. It's from the very beginning of the story that God specializes in bringing everybody, everybody to the nativity, everybody to come and to see the king that is in the manger. The king that provides a new spiritual exodus. So we're not shocked then that the weirdos worship. They come, they bow down, and they worship. Now, if you're a parent and you've got like, you know, Jesus is in his like pack and play or whatever, and they're like, you know, dressed kind of weird and may have an accent and talk in a different language, and then they bow down and they open their treasures, that's kind of strange. See, it's strange for us too because... (laughs) So much of our spiritual lives are like, when I see Jesus on the cross, yes, it's easy. I can worship that king. When I see the empty tomb and Jesus standing in glory, I worship that king. Or when Jesus ascends to be with the Father in heaven, I can worship that king. Can you worship the king that's a baby in a manger? You see, we must get out of the sentimentality or the cuteness. It's a baby. It's a baby. 
He's a king. He's a king. And sometimes it takes the strange ones among us, the outsiders among us, to show us, what do we do with this baby? We worship him because he's king. I thought you had to have power to be a king. Oh, like King Herod? I thought you need to have a palace like King Herod. (laughs) You need to have all these things. Look at the contrast. No power, no palaces, no stately form, no majesty that we would be drawn to him. Yet here he is in a manger. Let the women lead the way. Let the astrologers from the east lead the way for us this Christmas. As strange as it might be to take their lead, they have a place at the nativity because they show us really what Christmas is all about and that we are called to worship, to worship our newborn king. Let us pray. We see you in the manger and we worship. We worship you today because your birth was for a purpose. And what life it gives us, what light it shines, not only to us, but your life is the light for all people. I desire, Lord, to be a child of the light. I want to walk with you, the one in whom there is no darkness. The night and the day are as alike, for you are the lamb in the city of God where there is no need of light, for the lamb gives it its light. So come and shine in my heart today that I might bow, that I might worship a king in a manger, a king that's come to give me freedom, not just in land, not just to move me from one place to another to fulfill a promise, but to fulfill the ultimate promise of life, of a new exodus, of freedom from slavery to sin and death. Come, O come, Emmanuel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.